Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to host today Erin Kelly on the podcast. Hi, Erin. Hi. So Erin um, is Professor of Work and Organization Studies at the MIT Sloan School of Management, and she's also affiliated to the Institute for Work and Employment Research. She's a member of the Work and Families Researchers Network, and that's where I had um, the pleasure of already Uh, meeting her twice at the conferences and and listen to her research presentations. She investigates the adoption, implementation and consequences of work family and anti-discrimination policies at US workplaces. So basically she looks at everything that is our bread and butter here at the Work-Life Hub, work-life conflict um, and interventions. And she's also multiple recipient of the Rosabeth Moss Cantor Award for Work and Family Research. Um, so before we start this this very exciting conversation for me, um, I just wanted to also say that one of my um, favorite um, publications or articles from you, Erin, is the Getting There From Here paper, mm-hmm. because it looks at, really tries to connect those two things that we're looking at, work-life conflict and then the business case. Why does it make sense for businesses? So before uh, we start talking about this, um, let me just ask you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your career, and what gave you this inspiration that you started exploring exactly these areas of, of research? Great. Thank you so much, Agnes. It's great to be here. And I've been looking forward to this as well. Um, Well, I'm a sociologist of work and organizations, and I've been interested in how workplaces can be fully inclusive and fully supportive of all of the workers in that organization, pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, I was interested in issues of women's work and childcare and family leaves when I was a teenager growing up in Texas mm-hmm. <laughs> a long time ago. Um, you know, uh, your, your listeners probably realize that the United States um, has relatively minimal 
uh, public policies to support people who are trying to combine family life and and employment. And that was clear to me, you know, really since I first started paying attention to the world of work. Um, so I've just been lucky to uh, be been able to study this area for a long time now and um, move from asking questions about which companies or which employers offer certain benefits in the U.S. to now looking at, well, how does this really play out inside of organizations and how does it affect employees um, and their families? the larger community, and, of course, the employer and the organization itself. Great. Thanks so much for, for sharing this. And, and it's actually so interesting um, what you just said about also your research interest maturing, basically from the level of what to why and how. And, mm-hmm. and we found this quite interesting now in the financial economic crisis just now that even in Europe, um, when public policy was cut and there was a lot of austerity measures, um, even the companies and the institutions that have started implementing work-life support and, and uh, advancing women and all kinds of initiatives and interventions, even in the 70s, they didn't really put in place anything to, any mechanisms to measure you know, the actual outcomes or benefits. Mm-hmm. So now when, mm-hmm. when government started to cut, it was difficult to say, well, you cannot cut, but then why not? You know, what does this actually do? So it's... It, that is interesting. Yeah, so yeah. We, we understood now that um, we need to measure and document and, and just what I said in the introduction about the business case, I think that's, that's, that's somehow clearly a link that is missing from this is the right thing to do, so why aren't we doing it? <laughs> mm-hmm. So right. you are um, doing some of the work that you're doing is within this work, family and health network that uh, concerns itself and studies in a very, very practical way, workplace interventions. So would you mind taking listeners a little bit into this this um, department or institute or, or laboratory <laughs> that it is and, and, and how you actually go about observing directly what is happening um, in workplaces? Sure. Um, I've been very happy to be a part of this work, family, and health network um, for almost 10 years now. And um, we are a group of researchers who were funded by some agencies within the United States federal government and some foundations to look at the connections between work and family and health. Part of the inspiration was that there used to be pretty separate conversations about health and safety and wellness and then work-life issues separately. And one of our main goals was to try to integrate those conversations. And so we've been studying workplace interventions. And we don't mean anything fancy there. We just mean any change in policy or practice we would call an intervention. Um, But we're especially interested in changes inside workplaces that don't just change the rules on the books or the official policy, but also change 
how we interact with each other, how we evaluate each other, really get at the organizational culture. And um, we went into two different industry partners and asked them if we could um, pursue this initiative or this intervention that we thought was promising. And I'm gonna talk generally about the what, what this in, initiative does um, but we called the initiative We Studied STAR. Um, so generally, our perspective is that when we think about what needs to change at work to support work-life integration and reduce work-life conflicts, we wanted to look at the way work is done and when and where work is done. And, um, you know, everyone talks about flexibility, but flexibility can mean so many things. Mm. Flexibility can mean you're available to come in whenever your employer asks you to come in and work. It can mean you're flexible in the sense that you uh, pay attention to your emails and um, and uh, phone messages and respond right away. Those are kind of management-driven flexibility or, you know, the employees being flexible. We wanted to look at ways that employees could have more say or more control over when, where, and how they did their work. And we also realized that supervisors are a critical part of people's experience on the job and how much work-life conflict they experience. So we wanted to... Um, kind of open up conversations around how work is done and involve supervisors in that, but but not have the supervisors making the decisions. So this approach that we follow, we call a work redesign approach. And I, um, I see it as pretty different from the way we usually do flexibility, at least in the United States. In the United States, if someone wants to work at home or change their schedule, uh, shift, have a flexible schedule, they would go ask their manager. And even when a company is has a formal policy saying that flexibility is allowed, it's really up to the manager. Um, and that makes some sense because there are some jobs where certain arrangements can happen and some jobs where they can't. But the general idea is almost... Uh, may I please or mother may I approach to flexibility. And a particular worker may get told yes, and a worker doing the same job but working for a different manager might be told, no, you can't do that. So um, the approach that the Work Family and Health Network pursued was some manager training developed by Leslie Hammer and Ellen Kosick um, and then implemented in our studies. The second part after the manager training was really having conversations as a team to look at the way we do our work and really have everything on the table. How do we want to work so that we can get this job done, but also meet our personal goals or meet our family obligations or just work sustainably, be able to keep doing this job year after year after year? Um, and so that's the kind of intervention approach that I'm most excited about to kind of hone in on it. Um, the idea is that we make 
working in a smart and sustainable way normal. It's not a flexible work arrangement that a few people get to do, but instead a whole team or department or whole organization is open to looking at how they do their work with dual goals of working smarter and working in a sane and sustainable way. Great. Thank you so much for this great detailed um, explanation. And, and I mean, it really rings, you know, a bell or it, it really, I would rather say it's music to my ears because um, it really looks at some of the core principles of transparency and fairness and integration and not just these individual accommodations, which, mm-hmm. which then perpetuate maybe fear at the workplace or suspicion or some of those really negative things that we don't like at work and that stresses us at work. Um, so I, I'm so interested to maybe hear a little bit further about your experiences of how did then the managers took this on and, and what were your uh, experiences and impressions with, with maybe these pilots or the first uh, cases that you studied? Um, yeah, sure. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, we went into two different workforces, and one of them was information technology professionals in a large U.S. firm. So these are people who do IT work. They write software or they test programs or you know they keep systems up and running. The second industry partner was a group of um, nursing homes, and I have been less involved in um, all of the research on the nursing homes, so I probably won't have time to talk about that today, but it's obviously an important case and a challenging case to try to support nursing assistants and um, have them have schedules that work for them and feel supported in their personal lives because we know they do such critical care work for elderly people or um, disabled people in those sites. But um, turning back to the IT professionals, there was a lot of enthusiasm about this approach, the STAR program, and really... People talked about um, feeling heard, feeling treated like they were professionals in all domains. Um, Some teams would uh, just have shift their hours or shift their work location. So more people were working at home more regularly. Other teams went beyond that and also sat down together and talked about wait a second, do we need to have three meetings a week just to update each other on this project or that project? Um, What if we communicated differently by uh, tracking our our progress electronically so that we're not all sitting in meetings for those three hours a week? Um, Other teams would talk about uh, it being legitimate now, it being acceptable to not answer your email for two or three hours so that you could actually get the real work done. In this Mm -hmm. IT workforce, like many professional and managerial uh, employers or organizations, uh, people 
said over and over that the work had gotten more and more and more intense over the last 10 and 15 years. They were trying to do more with less and they felt frantic. And part of what the work redesign approach does is ask people to look concretely at whether what they're doing is necessary for the core goals um, or whether they can uh, stop doing some of that work so that they can be more effective and efficient. And um, so that is an exciting part of it. It's not about work life per se. It's about working effectively that has real consequences for your life outside of work. Absolutely. And, and um, I'm just quite curious about how sticky these initiatives are. Do they... Because I, I guess mm -hmm. it's, there's always an enthusiasm at the beginning to embrace something new. Everybody sees that this can have, have a real positive effect. But when it comes to a more stressful time or deadline, wouldn't managers or even the workforce t tend to, to slip back into the old ways of doing and, and this frantic way of, of, of doing things? So how, do, how can you ensure that, that these changes and these achievements are going to last and not and not be forgotten as a kind of a flavor of the month right i think that's a great question our research team followed the impact of star which is the initiative we were studying over 18 months um, and then we have some follow-up data as well uh, it is important to you know uh, watch for a while and be sure that people don't just experiment with something and then revert back to the old way of doing things. I'm sure that happens sometimes, but part of what happens with a star approach or a work redesign approach is that you're changing the conversation. You've had, you've given people time and space and permission to talk together um, about the way they do their work. And so the team can reinforce with each other and for each other, wait a second, um, things were going well and now we've gotten frantic again. Maybe we should look at the way we're doing our work. Um, I think that um, it becomes a kind of social change uh, and that's part of the reason that it's important to do it collectively, not to have an individual ask for a different arrangement, but instead to have it be the whole group um, so that you're really changing those norms. Um, so I think there are real challenges in sustaining this kind of approach over time. And um, we acknowledge that, but I think it has a better chance of being sustained than the old ways of doing Absolutely. flexibility, right? Where, where it's only one person is allowed to do this and then maybe they leave or they, as you mentioned before, they don't even ask for what would really help them because they're too nervous about what, how that would be received. Yeah, and what, what also is, is, strikes me when, when I'm listening to you is that it seems like these initiatives and this change process that you're talking about is, is gender neutral. You know, mm -hmm. we're no longer mm -hmm. talking about some of those um, 
some of those arrangements or policies or practices that would be um, really perceived as something for women or working mothers but this is this is somehow more gender neutral and and that's i think a very interesting evolution in the in this area of of moving away from from a bit destigmatizing policies maybe and and trying to look at the workforce as a, as a whole what what is your your take on this i agree absolutely part of my interest in this whole field uh, is an interest in gender equality and women's experiences at work and um, and I acknowledge that um, in the past, uh, the way that work was organized kept many women out or kept them from being able to move up as they wanted to. At the so kind of the gender history is there and it is real and we have to pay attention to it. At the same time, today the way that we ask professionals and managerials to work hurts women, hurts mothers, hurts fathers, hurts people caring for elderly relatives, both men and women, Mm -hmm. and hurts people who have fairly minimal family responsibilities. As hours have crept up and up and up and people are asked to do, uh, to work so intensively, um, even people with Few family responsibilities are worn down and exhausted and burned out. Um, so that part of what our research team has, wants to do is make the connections between work-life conflict and health, but also make the point that this effect has broad effects beyond the people we usually connect to the terms work-life balance or work-life conflict. Absolutely. And... Um... So maybe taking the conversation a little bit to to this issue of the business case and the mm-hmm. article I mentioned in, in the beginning. So that's, I think, what probably the, the practitioners and, and I guess maybe even the researchers are grappling a little bit with is that we know that this is the right thing to do. There is a, a whole... Um, arena of, of research that shows you know what is the effect on on long working hours on your health on your from weight to all kinds of you know aspects but also mm-hmm, we know mm-hmm. about children and in the impact on child development mm-hmm. so we, we know a little bit that it's all there but it seems to me that we still have a little bit of a difficulty to translate it into the corporate language or the business language which by definition, is not concerned with, you know, childcare or, or leaves. You know, they, that's just not their business. They want to, they want to sell and they want to produce. So, so how can we build this? So, how would you, perhaps, just give a glimpse into into your interpretation or your business case, to make it clear to the board or CEOs why it is important to invest in any kind of initiative that would that would introduce smarter working or more uh, work-life balance for the employees? Well, I think um, it's a terrific question. And as you said, it's a challenging question. Um, One point is that employers should care about things beyond the short term and the medium term, right? 
And I know that that's challenging, a challenging argument to make these days. But I think that the impacts on health and the impacts on child development and workforce development are real, and we shouldn't let go of them. Um, you know, so I, I I firmly believe that it's important that employers think about um, how they're affecting their broader community and how they're contributing to the workforce of the future as well. Um, within the kind of domain of the company or the organization, um, our research has shown quite clearly that there are positive impacts on job satisfaction, on engagement and interest in, um, in really putting, giving your all to your work. I don't mean giving your all in terms of every waking hour, but I mean being thoughtful and excited about your work so that you can contribute the best you can. And then my colleague Phyllis Moen is the lead author on a new paper that we have in press now where we show that um, turnover or voluntary exits from the IT workplace uh, was lower among the employees who went through STAR as compared to the employees in the same organization who were in the work units that continued on with their usual policies. So I think we have um, quite clear evidence that turnover can be reduced. Uh, I'm not sure whether that term is is used in all countries. I mean, um, when an employee decides to leave the Mm -hmm. job voluntarily. And, you know, so that's important to realize. And I think one... um, Sometimes companies accept turnover or don't see the full costs of turnover. Of course, there's the hassle of finding a replacement and training that person, but there's also uh, the knowledge that's lost, um, the the time it takes to get uh, to be as productive and produce the quality services or products. Um, all of that needs to be considered as well. I, what I've seen, especially in the European context, is that some markets, um, and especially Germany or, or the UK in France, so that there seems to be a, a, um, a growing gap between the really highly skilled um, employees, very highly mm-hmm. specialized chemistry, engineers, uh, IT fintech and then almost the rest of the workforce and Mm -hmm. organizations and we've seen that also within the us right with these unlimited vacations and one year paid leave um to some of the the workforce in those it companies in silicon valley so so some um some employees have through their specialization and knowledge gained somehow much stronger bargaining power in, mm-hmm. in their working conditions compared to others and then the rest which is really replaceable and and you know okay there's so much unemployment in some countries that okay even if you leave who cares we'll just get the next guy in through the door so that's i see where i see a little bit of the of of 
of really this this risk developing that unless we systematize these mm-hmm. initiatives across mm-hmm. the workforce there will be somehow a class of its own who has really great work life um balance and then the others who still struggle with work life conflict I agree completely and I think one of the challenges um so I I summarize for you that the research is strongest in terms of um, reduced work-life conflicts or more flexible supportive environments help with job satisfaction, engagement, and turnover. But I hear you, Agnes, I agree completely that if turnover is the only um, way that we motivate these changes, then it's hard to convince employers who are ready to have a revolving door that they should make these changes too. Mm, exactly. And so I think one of the interesting areas of research and where I would like to learn more myself um, are the people who are looking at what are the costs of turnover to the firm even among lower wage workers or workers who are not the superstars in specialized fields. You know, um, part of what needs to happen is we need to really document how high levels of turnover among retail workers and nursing assistants and people in rest, working in restaurants and other people um, who are not scientists or attorneys, you know, yeah. how turnover affects the quality of work done in those workplaces. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. for me also, the my fascination is finding evidence, but then helping to roll it out, you know, scale it. And then, mm-hmm. so I always mm. get happy and frustrated at the same time when I speak to companies and they tell me, yes, we have just implemented this new uh, program for new dads. This is a bank actually in Germany. We have an, a, a father's mm-hmm. network for young dads and we talk about taking parental leave and paternity leave. And and then I always get, you know, my, despite being not being a researcher, my key research question is why did you put in place this this father's network and all of this. And then the answer is, well, the CEO has become a grandfather. His son is a millennial, (laughs) a new dad, who doesn't want to make all these sacrifices and and wants to spend time with uh, his child. So he impacted on on the thinking and the philosophy. And and then you think, great, it's it's an emotional decision, (laughs) not a business decision. I think that, you know, even the best evidence can be interpreted differently uh, depending on your perspective. And those emotional hooks are important to find and to recognize. And that's part of why I said earlier, we want to talk about the business case, but we also want to talk about the business's role in supporting young families and allowing people to care for their relatives towards the end of their lives. I mean, those are um, workforce development issues and just general issues of uh, humane and caring society that we also wanna keep on the table because those might be the emotional hooks for the next CEO. Um, to then decide to change policy in his or her organization. Now, um, 
unfortunately time is running way too quickly sure so before we go to the <laughs> next um to the to the last question on our podcast may i ask you erin to tell listeners um where they can find perhaps the star program they could download all those materials those wonderful materials from the star website and then also where they can find you where they can reach out to you or follow you on twitter maybe Okay, sure. Um, all of the research that I've talked about and the toolkits for implementing these changes are available at uh, the Work Family Health Network website. And that is www.workfamilyhealthnetwork.org. So Work Family Health Network with no punctuation in that core part of the title. Dot org. And I am on Twitter at underscore E.L. Kelly, or um, people are welcome to email me at E.L. Kelly at MIT.edu. Wonderful. Thank you very much. We will put these also onto the show notes, just in case somebody okay, is listening great. to this on their phone, on their commute, and then <laughs> they can also have this, have this URL. So now coming to the last question, which is always the same one, if I could ask you based on your long experience and, and really your wealth of experience working with companies, if, if I could ask you to give one advice to a CEO um, to make a, an improvement, a change in the well-being of his or her employees, what would be your advice? Where should they start? What area should they be looking at? Well, I'm going to say go big. I'm going to say uh, be <laughs> open to uh, the kind of work redesign approach that I've been talking about, even if it seems uh, scary or crazy, because I think it has the broadest impact and the deepest impact. Um, so a work redesign approach asks people to think about when, where, and how their work is done and how they can do that work in ways that benefit them as individuals and benefit the organization. I think because a work redesign approach asks employees and managers to talk together, it really has the best chance of shifting the culture and not just being a policy that's added but then ignored or added and then avoided because some people worry about what it will signal. So I think um, that is my advice. My suggestion is to dream big and take the leap. Wonderful. Wonderful, because I, I, I think that it always boils down to the real culture change. We don't want just, you know, plasters on a wooden leg. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We would want, you know, good strong legs or metal legs <laughs> you know so so it, it's true what you say and and i really appreciate it because sometimes in the long run this little fixing of little policies or here and there is going to create more work and then be less effective and then you wasted all that time right so if you go all in then you know you get the best out at the end that's great yeah i love that <laughs> <laughs> that was my little summary of your wonderful. Of course, you put it no, so much no. more succinctly, but <laughs> all in. 
Great. Great. Thank you so much, Erin. I really, really appreciate it that you took this time to share your incredible wealth of experience and knowledge with the listeners. And I wish you all the best for your future work and research. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It was really fun. Thanks. <laughs>